Star Wars, The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly, read by Alec Bowles. Han Solo's Revenge 3. Han Solo was obliged to raise his voice to deliver the punchline. A gargantuan ore barge was settling in with such a booming of brute engines that, even though it was grounding halfway across the vast spaceport, it set up tiny wavelets and drinks in the passenger's terminal's main lounge. The main lounge of Bonadan Spaceport Southeast II was colossal, and besides the unceasing rumble of arriving and departing ships, was filled with the conversation of thousands of human and non-human customers that overtaxed its sound-muting system. The lounge's transparent dome revealed a sky teeming with ships of every description, their comings and goings orchestrated by the most advanced control system available. Planetary and solar system shuttles, passenger liners, the enormous barges carrying food and raw materials, authority security police fleet ships, and bulk freighters bearing away Bonadan's manufactured goods, all combined to make this one of the busiest ports in the corporate sector. Although it encompassed tens of thousands of star systems, the corporate sector authority was no more than an isolated cluster among the uncountable suns known to humankind. But there wasn't one native intelligent life form to be found in this entire part of space. A number of theories existed to explain why. The authority had been chartered to exploit the incalculable wealth here. There were those who used words like despoil and pillage for what the authority did. It maintained absolute control over its provinces and employees and guarded its prerogatives jealously. Leaning closer to Chewbacca, Han chuckled. So the prospector says, get this, Chewie. The prospector says, well, how do you think my pack beast got knock-kneed? He had timed the delivery just right. Chewbacca had raised a two-liter mug of Ebla beer to his lips, and a spasm of laughter caught him right in the middle of a long draft. He choked, snorted, and woofed mightily into his mug. White beer spume exploded outward. Though they registered displeasure, patrons at nearby tables inspecting the Wookiee and noting his size and the fierce fanged visage refrained from complaining. Han chortled, as he scratched a shoulder made itchy by the somatogenerative effects of the synth flesh. Chewbacca uttered a guttural accusation. The pilot raised his eyebrows. Of course I timed the punchline that way. Bollocks told that joke to me while I was eating, and it did the same thing to me. Chewbacca thought about the joke again and laughed abruptly, something halfway between a grunt and a bark. Throughout his story, and most of the long Bonadan morning, Han had kept an eye on table 131. It was still vacant, and the little red light over its robo-bartender indicated that it was still reserved. The closest overhead chrono 
showed that the time for Zlarb's rendezvous with his employer was long past. The lounge was nearly filled, which tended to be true of this place at any hour of the day or night, what with the number of passengers and crew members passing through the port, in addition to resident personnel. It was a light, airy, and open place, constructed in levels of meandering terraces, where plants from hundreds of authority worlds had been nurtured. Though every table had a clear view of the constant traffic above, foliage tended to screen one terrace from the next. The two partners had selected a table from which they could observe Table 131 through a lush curtain of Dean orchid vines, freckled with sweet-smelling moths, and still remain inconspicuous. It had been their uncomplicated plan to observe who came to meet Zlarb at the table, follow them out, and accost them. Collecting their 10,000 by dint of whatever threats or intimidation seemed appropriate. But something was plainly wrong. No one had come. Han began feeling uneasy despite his joking. Neither he nor Chewbacca was armed. Bonadan was a highly industrialized, densely inhabited planet, one of the Authority's foremost factory worlds. With masses of humanity and other life forms packed together in such number, the security police, ESPOs, as they were called in slang talk, were at great pains to keep lethal weapons out of the hands and other manipulatory appendages of the populace. Weapons detectors and search-scan monitors were to be found almost everywhere on the planet, including thoroughfares, places of business, stores, and public transportation. And, most particularly, surveillance was maintained at each of Bonadan's ten sprawling spaceports, the largest of which was Southeast II. Carrying a firearm, either blaster or Wookiee bowcaster, would be grounds for immediate arrest, something the two could hardly afford. If their true identities and past activities ever came to light, the corporate sector authority's only regret would be that it could only execute them one time apiece. The one positive aspect of this situation, the way Han saw it, was that Zlarb's contact would in all probability be unarmed as well or would have been. It was beginning to look like their weight had been for nothing. Chewbacca punched a series of buttons on the robo-bartender and bet it some cash, very nearly their last. A panel slid back and a new round of drinks waited. The Wookiee took up a new mug enthusiastically, and for Han, there was another half bottle of strong local wine. Chewbacca drank deeply and with obvious bliss, eyes closed, lowering the mug at last to wipe the white ring of suds out of his facial hair with the back of one paw. He closed his eyes again and smacked his lips loudly. Han approached his bottle with less ardor. Not that he didn't like the wine. It was the intrusive nature of this over-civilized planet, as reflected in the design of the bottle, that he abhorred. He pressed hard on the cap's seal with his thumb, and the cap popped off. Once off, it was almost impossible to reaffix. Then came the part Han really loathed. Breach of the cap triggered the release 
of a small energy charge. Light-emitting diodes manufactured into the bottle began a garish show. Figures and lettering marched around the bottle, extolling the virtues of its contents. The LEDs scintillated, giving what were intended to be winning statements about the wine's contents, bouquet, and the high standards of personal hygiene embraced by the bottler's employees and automata. Consumer information appeared, too, though in far smaller letters and less blinding hues. Han, glaring at the bottle, refusing to touch it as long as it persisted in flaunting itself, thought, I should have had some of these back on Kamar. The Badlanders would probably have danced around them holding hands and singing hymns. After a minute or so, the tiny charge was exhausted, and the bottle reverted to an unaggressive container. Han's attention was attracted by a conversation going on by table number 131, only a few meters away on the next terrace down. An assistant manager, a blue-furred, four-armed native of Fofia, was engaged in a difference of opinion with an attractive young female of Han's own species. The manager was waving all four arms in the air. But the table is reserved, human! Can you not see the red courtesy light that so designates it? The human appeared to be several years younger than Han. She had straight black hair that fell just below the nape of her slender neck. Her skin was a rich brown, her eyes nearly black, indicating that she came from a world that received a good deal of solar radiation. She had a long, mobile face that showed, Han thought, a sense of humor. She wore an everyday working outfit, a blue one-piece bodysuit and low boots. She stood, hands gracefully on hips, and stared at the Fofian, unconvinced. Then she contorted her face in a very close imitation of the manager's, waving her arms and shrugging her shoulders in precisely the way he had, though she was a couple of arms short. Han found himself laughing aloud. She heard him, caught his eye, and gave him a conspiratorial smile. Then she went back to her dispute. But it's been reserved ever since I came in, hasn't it? And nobody's claimed it, have they? There's no other small tables, and I'm tired of sitting at the bar. I want to wait for my friends right here. Or should we take our business elsewhere? It doesn't look like you're making much money off this table right now, does it? She had hit him in a vital spot. Lost revenue was something a good authority employee simply never permitted. The blue-furred manager looked around worriedly to make sure the party or parties for whom the table was reserved wouldn't materialize out of thin air and object. With an eloquent, four-shouldered gesture of resignation, he flicked off the red courtesy light. The young woman took her place with a look of satisfaction. That's that, Han sighed to Chewbacca, who had noticed the incident too. No collections today. Zlarb's boss is as slippery as he was. The Wookiee grumbled like a drumroll in a deep cave. He added a surly afterward as he rose to check on the Millennium Falcon. After you check the ship, Han called after him, go hunt around the guild hiring halls and the portmaster's headquarters. I'll meet you later at the landing zone. See if anybody we know is in port. Maybe somebody can tell us something. Chewie, if we don't come into some cash pretty soon, we're not even going to be able to get off Bonadan. I'm going to finish my wine, then make a few more stops to look for familiar faces. 
The Wookiee, scratching his shaggy chest, acknowledged with a basso honk. As his co-pilot ambled off, Han took another sip of his wine and another look around, hoping that a last-minute arrival would give him a chance to pick up the 10000 somebody owed him. But he saw no one who looked interested in Table 131. Penury loomed before him, and he felt the near-undeniable craving for money to which he was especially susceptible in times of financial distress. He whiled away a few more minutes, sipping at the wine and admiring the young woman who had preempted Table 131. At length, she happened to turn and catch his eye again. Happy landings, she toasted, and he raised his glass in response to the old spacer's greeting. She eyed him speculatively. Long time out? He made an indifferent face, not sure why she was interested. No home port for me. Just a ship. It's simpler. She had drained her goblet. How about a refill? Her lively, amused face appealed to him. And it didn't make much sense to carry on the conversation through intervening plant life. He took his bottle and goblet and joined her at table 131. You and your friend were the only other ones keeping an eye on this table, she ventured as Han was refilling her goblet. He stopped pouring. She reached out one forefinger and gently tilted the bottom of the bottle up, filling her goblet nearly to the brim. It was obvious, you know, she went on. Every time someone approached this table, you and your sidekick looked as if you were going to jump through the foliage. I know. I'm very good at reading expressions. Han was looking around for her backup men, support troops, deputies, accomplices, or whatever. Nobody else in the lounge that he could see was paying any particular attention. He had envisioned meeting a slaver's contact, someone hard and mean enough to stomach and prosper in one of the vilest enterprises there was. This attractive, breezy female had taken him completely off guard. She sipped the wine. Mmm, delicious. How are things on Lure, by the way? She was now watching him vigilantly. He kept his face blank. Chilly, but the air is clearer than it is here. He batted the air with his hand. Not as much smoke blowing around. Know what I mean? Sounding as casual as he could, he went on. You have something for me, by the way, don't you? She pursed her lips as if in deep concentration. Since you bring it up, we do have a little business. But the main lounge is a little public, wouldn't you say? I didn't pick the place. Where would you suggest, sis? A dark alley? Down a mine shaft somewhere, maybe? Why meet here if not to take care of things? Maybe I just wanted to look you over in the light. She glanced at an overhead chrono. But you can take it for granted that you've been checked out and approved. After I've left, wait ten minutes, then follow. She slid him a folded dura sheet with stylus markings on it. Meet me at this private hangar. Bring proof of delivery and you'll get your money. She raised an eyebrow at him. You can read, can't you? Han took the dura sheet. I'm better at feeling my way. Why all the sneaking around? She gave him a sour look. 
You mean, why didn't I just come up to you and dump a mound of cash on the table and have you pass your receipt over? Work that out for yourself. She slid out of her seat and made her way out of the lounge without a backward glance. Hod enjoyed the view in a dispassionate manner. She had a very nice way of moving. His first impulse was to go find Chewbacca and perhaps even take a chance on arming himself. But if he had to hunt the Wookiee among the guild halls and portmaster's offices, it could take the rest of the long Bonadan day. Han possessed what he regarded as a certain flair for innovation, though, as well as a confidence in his own ability to cope. None of what the woman had said rang quite true, and her allowing Chewbacca to leave before speaking to Han definitely indicated that she was angling. Still, minutes ago he had been worrying about where his next meal was coming from, and now he had what might be a chance to get the money he felt was due him. That sort of thing always went a long way toward quieting Han Solo's misgivings. In any case, he had no intention of following her instructions precisely. He would cheat enough to give himself an advantage. After all, it was daylight, and the spaceport was buzzing with activity. As soon as she was out of sight, Han rose to go. On impulse, he put a little more money into the robo-bartender and got himself another half-bottle, taking two more throwaway goblets from the dispenser. He told himself, if she's on the level, she might still be thirsty. I hope this makes up for grabbing her money. Bonadan Spaceport Southeast, too, took in a larger square area than many cities though little of it extended very high above or far beneath the planet's surface. There were shipbuilding and refitting yards, dock facilities for the barges and bulk freighters, an ESPO command center, an authority merchant marine academy, and the portmaster's headquarters. Added to that were passenger terminals, maintenance depots, ground transportation installations, warehouses, and living and recreational arrangements for the thousands upon thousands of human and non-human types who either lived there or passed through Southeast too. Its immense expanse of fusion-formed soil supported fixed structures of permacite and shaped formex, and more transient ones of quick-throw and lock-slab. Because he had shipmaster's credentials, even though they were forged, Han didn't have to wait for the Interport shuttle skimmer. Flagging one of the special courtesy cabs, he set off with the conviction that he could get across the huge port before the woman and whatever friends she might have. He had the cab let him off a short distance from the hangar whose number she had given him. This part of the port was far less active. These hangars were rental structures, cheap, lock-slab constructions intended for private ships that might not be used for extended periods of time. As he approached his destination, he passed one of the weapons detectors that covered Bonadan. It tracked him for a moment, like some exotic overgrown flower following sunlight. Detecting no firearms on him, it swung away without issuing an alarm. Busybody, grumped Han, hastening on his way. 
Rather than enter the small rental hangar through the smaller portals set in the main doors, he located a rear door. It was unlocked, and he did a prudent amount of listening and peeking through before entering. It was a windowless building containing some maintenance equipment and a compact six-seater wanderer. A number of tools lay around the wanderer, suggesting that whoever had been working on her had gone out for some reason and left the rear door open. Satisfying himself that the hangar was deserted, he found a place behind a pile of shipping crates from which he could watch the main door without being seen. Hiking himself up onto an insulated shipping canister, he set down the goblets and half-bottle and waited. If the woman showed up with reinforcements, he'd be able to withdraw and follow them. If she came alone, Han figured, he'd soon be counting his money. Nevertheless, he began to wish Chewbacca was with him. He felt naked without his blaster, and the Wookiee's brawn would have been reassuring. He was still thinking that when the lights went out. Han jumped to his feet in a flash, pivoting slowly in absolute darkness without daring to breathe. He thought he heard sounds, a light skittering somewhere on or among the crates, but he couldn't get a fix on its direction. He had his hands and feet ready for defense, but felt useless and quite vulnerable in the dark. He wished his sense of smell were as keen as Chewbacca's. A weight hit his back and shoulders, driving him forward to hands and knees with a violence that knocked the breath from him. Then a rough, cold, damp surface was pressed up against his face. It felt like a hand within a heavy glove, but that was unimportant as he realized that the dampness was releasing fumes of some kind. He had caught his breath again when he had fallen, and his reflexes kept him from getting more than a whiff, but that alone set his head spinning. Fearing the anesthetic, Han tried to wrench his head away, but he succeeded only partially, and the glove fumbled for him again. With a terrific effort, he managed to continue holding his breath as he clamped down on the invisible hand and bit hard. His silent, invisible attacker wrenched madly and pulled the hand loose, breaking away. Han lurched to his feet, head still swimming. He swung blindly, trying to land a blow or catch hold of his unseen opponent, but without effect. Rotating slowly, listening to his own heart pound, he was taken by surprise again as he was butted from behind. Flying headlong, he struck the base of the shipping canister where he had been sitting. It was a double-walled container, but luckily it was empty and light enough to yield somewhat. Still, he saw points of light circling before his eyes. He concluded woozily that his assailant must have taken the logical precautions of wearing snooper goggles and breathing filters as well, conferring an enormous advantage. Something fell on Han's back and rolled onto the floor. Then the attacker was on him again, and it was all he could do to remember to hold his breath again. He struggled unsuccessfully to rise, protecting his head with one arm. As he did, his groping hand encountered something. It suddenly penetrated his dazed brain that what had landed on his back a moment before had been the half-bottle of wine, which he now held, jostled off the canister by the impact of Han's head. 
Unfortunately, he was in no position to swing it, being held down by his assailant's weight on his back. With desperate pressure of his thumb, he broke the bottle's seal. The cap snapped off, and the bottle's combination LED light display and commercial advertisement began throwing out a garish light, dispelling the blackness. The oppressive weight on his back shifted, then was gone. He could hear a scuffling of footsteps as his attacker retreated, confused or repelled by Han's unexpected trick. Han pushed himself back over, mouthing denunciations in four languages and trying to ignore the pain of his injuries and the effects of whatever it had been that he had inhaled. He dragged himself up, using the canister for support. His attacker was nowhere in sight. Han held the half-bottle up, but its glare didn't reach far into the gloom. The LEDs weren't, after all, meant for illumination. He knew he had no time to waste looking for either his enemy or the controls to the lights. The minor charge that powered the bottle's LEDs would last only a little longer. He stumbled back to the hangar's rear door, trying to keep watch in every direction, without further incident. Back in the glare of Bonadan's sun, he leaned against the hangar wall, closed his eyes, and panted until his head cleared. The bottle was dimming. He tossed it aside, and it bounced, rolling away rather than breaking. It was made of very tough glass. What bothered him most was the thought that his attacker might have been the girl. He really thought she had been more kindly disposed toward him, but the facts seemed to add up. She would hardly be working alone, though, and that meant that both Han and Chewbacca might have been watched in the passenger lounge. If Chewbacca had been followed from the lounge, he might really be in trouble. Han sprinted off, looking desperately for a courtesy cab, hoping he would get to his ship before somebody tore her apart. <laughs>